coming up on Philosophy Talk. What should you be reading this summer, and how should you be reading it? It's so easy to misread a book, a movie, or a TV show. How can we learn to get them right? This is a story of boy meets girl. What is fiction good for if it doesn't give you a happy ending and a simple moral takeaway? The boy, Tom Hansen of Margate, New Jersey, grew up believing that he'd never truly be happy until the day he met the one. This belief stemmed from early exposure to sad British pop music and a total misreading of the movie The Graduate. We're often told that fictions give us entertainment, escapism, and lessons about life. But what about the ones that don't? Have we forgotten how to read? The world is full of challenging, brilliant, sophisticated works of fiction. How can we let them give us all they have to offer? Summer reading and misreading. Coming up on Philosophy Talk. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Josh Landy. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're here at the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus, where Ken teaches philosophy, and I direct the Philosophy and Literature Initiative. Today, it's our annual Summer Miss Reading Show. We're taking a step back from the bookshelves to ask whether there's a right way, or at least a smarter way, to read sophisticated fiction. Later in the program, we'll talk to Marianne Wolf from UCLA, author of Proust and the Squid, about the neuroscience of reading. We'll also ask Thomas Pavel from the University of Chicago about how genre informs the way we read and misread works of fiction. And we'll talk to one of our featured bloggers, the philosopher Antonia Peacock, about what she calls reader's block. But to get us started, we sent our roving philosophical reporter, Nina Gensler-Debs, to find out how we can read our way to better forms of attention. She files this report. Open up almost any publication between June and August and you're likely to see summer reading recommendations from frothy romance novels to thrillers to thick biographies. It turns out that this concept, that summer is a great time to read, has been around for over a hundred years and is tied to another idea that came about around the same time, vacation. Before the 19th century, it was mostly the wealthy who could afford to go on getaways. But after World War I, vacation became more available to American middle and working class people. A post-war boom meant that travel-related industries started to flourish. Oil companies, car companies, and motels. At the same time, progressive employers started to be persuaded that giving their workers time off would lead to better and more efficient work. More holidays meant more time for people to read. And now, summer reading is a firmly established tradition. If something's interesting to me, I actually have a hard time not reading it. While she likes the idea of time to read, artist and writer Jenny O'Dell rejects the concept that we should think of our time in terms of maximizing productivity. And so, she recently wrote a book called How to Do Nothing and tried to do two things. First, to critique technology, mainly social media, and the financial incentives those companies have to keep you anxiously engaged. And then two was my interest in bioregionalism and coming to inhabit a place more thoughtfully, kind of in more detail, to feel like you're kind of part of something. So it's kind of my invitation um, to the reader to kind of wander away in a similar direction. Jenny's book was one of my favorites this spring, so I decided to ask her for some of her summer reading recommendations, books that aren't necessarily about taking you to a far-off place, but about looking at where you are now with a new perspective. They were all 
kind of books that set me on a path toward discovering some kind of segment of my physical environment that I, it turned out, was very ignorant about. Like, each book was like sort of a gateway drug, I guess, <laughs> for um, becoming interested in, in, you know, what's around me. The first book Jenny recommended is Spell of the Sensuous by David Abram. Abram is a philosopher and cultural ecologist. And in his book, he examines the way humans perceive and communicate with each other and our environment. Reading that was the first time I thought about other kinds of language besides verbal or like human expressive language. Just the other day I was in the Rose Garden and the birds are all singing and at this point I now hear individual species and it has like some meaning to me. And I was just like, what did I used to hear <laughs> when I came here? As you might be able to guess, Jenny is a bird watcher. Although, as she says in her book, half if not more of bird watching is actually bird listening. And she said that The Genius of Birds by Jennifer Ackerman was the book that really made her appreciate the intelligence of birds. In terms of like using tools and being able to recognize human faces and communicate that information to others, that was the book that prompted me to make friends with um, a couple of crows on my street that I have now known for three years. They will even recognize me if I'm like a block from my apartment and they'll kind of like land near me expecting a peanut. Jenny's third book recommendation is one she says she is indebted to. Braiding Sweetgrass was written by ecological scientist Robin Wall Kimmerer. In the book, Kimmerer writes about different living beings, from squash to salamanders, and explains that more ecological consciousness will show the ways humanity benefits from a reciprocal relationship with the natural world. The thing that I'm the most impressed by is just how she so skillfully and so poetically weaves together um, like you know, indigenous knowledge, um, weaving that together with Western science because she has a background in both. Kimmerer is also a member of the citizen Potawatomi Nation. One chapter of the book focuses on a study on the decline of sweetgrass, a plant that was important on multiple levels for her ancestors. It turns out that sweetgrass is dying because it's being under-harvested by humans. It had co-evolved with human practices of harvesting, and those practices had in turn evolved to help the plant. So you could argue it's literally dying of lack of attention. And then, of course, we ourselves are threatened by our own lack of attention to these kinds of things. In 1872, the Chicago Tribune published a list of summer book recommendations. They suggested that the best summer book is one that... The idler can take with him into solitude, and read with delightful pauses, when with indolent finger upon the page, his eye wanders up some green vista, or catches some view of the distant sea, and his ear is soothed with the distant murmur of the winds and waves. Maybe while reading one of these books, you'll hear the distant murmur of the waves, or maybe you'll look up and see a hawk flying overhead. Either way, take it as an opportunity to consider where you're directing your attention, and whether you might take Jenny O'Dell's invitation to wander away towards something different. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Nina Gensler-Debs. Thanks for that excellent report, Nina. I'm Josh Landy. With me is my Stanford colleague, Ken Taylor, and you're listening to our annual summer reading show. Josh, I, uh, there's something that's really been bothering me. You know, I teach freshmen how to read philosophy. I don't expect them to have learned much about how to read philosophy in high school, but I even give them a lot of literature. And, and, and it seems to me they don't even know how to read literature. And this was really brought on to, and it's not just my students. What really got me going 
I hate to admit it. I'm a huge Game of Thrones fan. I love the TV series, but it I hadn't read the books. It prompted me to start. I'm now reading the books, so that's my summer reading. Right. But the thing that really got me going was how many people misread Daenerys Targaryen. Okay, tell me more. Well, so look, I was reading these things along the way, and she's supposed to be some kind of feminist icon, and I'm thinking, no, she's not a feminist hero. <laughs> she's got this absolute will to power. And we're told the story of how that will to power grows and grows and grows. So they misread her as some kind of feminist icon rather than a growing tyrant who starts from nothing. Or to put the same point differently, I mean, she's a complicated figure. Because, I mean, maybe it's not even as simple as saying she's either a feminist icon or a growing tyrant. Maybe she's a bit of both. I mean, yes. she is a strong female character. And some of the things she does are admirable. But some of the things she does are, are despicable and troubling. This is like... A very tragic story. Right. Ex deeply tragic. Not in an Aristotelian sense, more like sh a Shakespearean tragedy, right? Where the world is a tragic place and human agency is inadequate to the challenges that it's given and these things that we most desire and dream of are unachievable. And I had this little, what I thought was an insight. The Iron Throne is to the Game of Thrones as the Ring of Power is to the Lord of Rings, right? In the Lord of the Rings... The ring of power must be destroyed. It cannot be worn by anyone. Even the people you most love and worship, it cannot be worn. It brings everything to ruin. The Iron Throne does the same thing. What happens to the ring of power? It gets destroyed. And would you have rooted for Frodo to end up with the ring of power? No, right? So why would you end, root for Daenerys? To end up with the Iron Throne. I love what you're saying, Ken. That's such a beautiful analogy. And, you know, it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, this show even gives us a tiny little glimpse along the way of a different way of being, a different way of willing, as Schopenhauer would say. You've got this lovely little vignette of Arya Stark uh, with the faceless man. And he tells her to basically be, to become no one. To us, it sounds potentially negative. Yeah. But what if it is a tragic world in which ultimately the best thing is for no one to occupy the throne? The best thing is for people to abandon these absurd ambitions that are destroying everything, have more moderate desires, be maybe not become no one, but become a little bit less. Here's what Daenerys was. She was about the charisma of tyranny. It's exactly what you're saying. She is both deeply charismatic and tyrannical at the same time. That's a disturbing thought, right? Because suppose you were like one of Hitler's taken in by Hitler, like Martin Heidegger was in the early days taken in by his charisma, taken in by his promise to rebuild Germany, taken in by his, you know, remake a new nation. And you were at one of his rallies and you were stirred and this nation was going to be lifted up from nothing. And then you realized, oh my God, this is where this leads. That's a disturbing thought, right? Some people think literature shouldn't disturb you like that. I'm thinking, shouldn't we celebrate the power of literature to disturb you like that? I think we absolutely should. I think that's the thing that worries me about the current cultural moment as far as reading fiction is concerned and watching fiction, that I think people are too often looking for fictions that kind of reconfirm their existing belief structure. Whereas, you know, there's a long tradition of great writers and great philosophers saying, that's not really the function of literature. It's, I mean, that's fine. It's a good thing, of course, for us to have beliefs and to, and to, to articulate them, to talk to each other. But literature is to do something else, right? I mean, maybe it's to transfigure suffering, as Nietzsche thought, and make it something we can live with. Or maybe it's to spur our emotions in some kinds of way. People like Wordsworth and Tolstoy and John Stuart Mill thought. But yeah, maybe it's what you say in some cases, to shake us up out of our certainties. Right. It's something deep in human nature. It's not really about the cultural moment. We read literature... 
we watch fiction, we look for rooting interest, right? Right. And here's what we think. We think the rooting interest is the moral center. Sometimes the maker of fiction does a trick on you, makes you, invites you, compels you to root for a character who is not the moral center. That's what Game of Thrones does. That's what I think uh, Three Billboards. Three Billboards, fantastic example. Fantastic example of the person that you feel compelled to root for is not... They're not the moral morally center. perfect. <laughs> yes, they're not uh, morally perfect. Not only are they not morally, they're deeply morally problematic. Right. And that's why people right. thought when, when she had a reconciliation with the racist cop, they thought the racist cop is thereby redeemed. But that's no, not what he's it was not saying redeemed at all. At all. Right. Exactly. Right. right. And then there's this other thing that this is really our culture moment. This is one of the reasons we've gotten rid of the great books and the canon and all that sort of stuff, because we're looking for affirmation of ourselves in what we read. And so he said, where are all the black people? Where are all the gay people? Where are all the women in all these old dead books? Right. So we're thinking we don't want to read those anymore. Not because they don't have anything to say, because they don't affirm us, right? So if we're looking for affirmation, if we collapse the moral center with the rooting interest, and those two things work together, we're going to misread tons of literature. Yeah, that sounds right to me. I, I, I particularly like your first point about you know, looking for this rooting interest. I mean, so often works of great literature, great movies, great TV shows present us with these very fraught, morally complicated people who are doing some things well and some things really badly. And unfortunately, if we live in a, an environment that's telling us the only thing you can do with fiction is look to it for examples of good behavior or bad behavior to avoid and lessons about life, well, what are we going to do with these complicated right. We know what we're going to say. We're going to say that's a bad TV show. That's right. a bad film. It's dangerous. Why is it dangerous? Because we're being told to emulate the main character. Exactly. But that's not the right way of thinking about it. You know, Kundera has this lovely line. He says, um, suspending moral judgments, not the immorality of the novel. It's its morality. I'm going to invite you to judge these characters right from the first 10 minutes. And guess what? You're going to turn out to be wrong. And then you're going to form a new judgment, and guess what? You're wrong again. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And that's the morality of the novel? Yes. And then when you're done, I'm going to ask you to judge your darn self. Right? Exactly. <laughs> and gain some moral self-knowledge. And this is what's on offer from things like Game of Thrones exactly. and, and, and Three Billboards and Hamlet and a bunch of other things. You can listen to the rest of this episode by purchasing it on iTunes Music. Or for unlimited listening, subscribe to our archive at philosophytalk.org. 